Welcome to episode 174 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Today, I'm going to be talking to Rod Matthews. He's the co-founder and CEO of Brevian Energy, a renewable energy technology company based in California and an experienced microgrid solution provider. So we're going to talk microgrids. And welcome to the uh, to the show, Rod. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm very happy to be here today. Well, we're happy to have you. And, and I'm very sorry to hear that uh, Southern California, where you're uh, where you live and you're talking to us from is uh, gloomy and overcast. What's going on in Southern California? That's not the norm, right? No. Well, traditionally here in uh, San Diego, where I am, uh, we have what's called May gray or June gloom, where usually around the halfway point of May to about the halfway point of June, we don't get a lot of sunshine, but we do get some. Uh, but this year, I mean, the sun has just been absent. I think it's on a break. It's taking a vacation right now. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I worked in Bakersfield for three years, and uh, the the winters there were a revelation because, I, and I assume it's you know there's so much agriculture around and it's irrigated that they would create fog, and it was the most is thickest, most impenetrable. Yes. London yes. had nothing on this fog, and <laughs> that, you know people it does would, get pretty foggy. Yeah, and people would drive to work. And in the fog, and they could hardly see 10 feet in front of, maybe not, couldn't even see 10 feet in front of their cars. Yeah. And there would be, you know, smash ups and, and accidents and, and that scared the hell out of me. Anyway, be <laughs> that as it may, we're happy to have you. Thank now, you. we are going to talk about microgrids. And My favorite subject. Indeed, uh, because you are an, an expert in the planning and building of microgrids. And previously, all my interviews have been with analysts, mm -hmm. but I wanted to, where I think we're at the point now, my sense is that we're at the point in the industry now where microgrids are becoming a viable option for uh, industries, uh, commercial businesses, communities, cities, towns, neighborhoods. I mean, it's and we're all worried about energy security and and blackouts or we're, we're worried about cost how are we going to how are we going to scale up elect, clean clean electricity as mm -hmm. we electrify everything um so, and I'll give you just a little a little background this is context of where I come from so I live on Vancouver Island in a little town called uh, well a little city called Parksville 10,000 people and the regional government is looking at uh, creating a local clean energy strategy because the idea is if as we electrify everything, heat pumps, electric cars, and so on, we know we're going to need two to three times the the electricity we generate today. And the the British Columbia uh, system is great as it stands. It's all hydro. It's mm -hmm. nine and a half cent. I paid nine and a half <clears throat> cents a kilowatt hour. I mean that's crazy cheap, right? That is. And there's lots of it. So it's reliable. It, it's really a great system. But we don't know how to scale it up two or three times. At least I don't think we do. And so the city, this area is looking and saying, well, you know, what if we add some solar and wind and geothermal or whatever, and maybe maybe microgrids are an option. And, you know, that can supplement the existing grid from BC Hydro. And I'm thinking, well, if Parksville, which is not the most progressive place on the planet, is thinking about that. What's it like in California? What's it like in other places? And so is our situation here a, a common one, Rod, in your experience? Absolutely. Uh, we have a lot of uh, locations really thinking about this. 
Uh, here in California, you know, cost really drives that. Um, here in San Diego, uh, we we have our uh, investor-owned utility is San Diego Gas and Electric, and they have the highest utility rates in the entire country. Oh, so oh. cost is really kind of driving uh, the the owners to you know move in the direction of microgrids. In some areas, like you know where you are, or in Texas, uh, perhaps they are looking at uh, resiliency really driving the microgrid initiatives uh, because they have issues with uh, uh, grid stability. Um, they lose their uh, connection to the grid uh, a little bit more frequently than they care to, and you know microgrids is certainly a way to mitigate that as well. So you know with the microgrids, we look to reduce costs and provide that resiliency. And for us, we want to have generate power more responsibly. So it doesn't emit as many greenhouse gas emissions, you know, have those greenhouse gas emissions. What, if you don't mind me asking, what do you pay for a kilowatt hour of electricity down in San Diego? See, the funny thing you say, you pay a nine and a half cent per kilowatt. For us, it depends on what time you use that uh, kilowatt that determines what you pay for it. Uh, so we have really three different rates. Uh, we have what's called uh, off-peak, uh, which is between 7 a.m. and 3.59. Uh, you're probably paying around 20 cent or so per kilowatt hour. Uh, you have a super off-peak, which is, you know, that 10 o'clock a.m. to, you know, 6.59 a.m., you know, where you're paying around what you're paying, nine and a half, ten cent per kilowatt. Uh, then you have what's called peak. That's four o'clock PM to nine o'clock PM when everybody's home, everybody's washing clothes and cooking and, uh, you know, have all the electronics on watching television. You're paying in up to 54, 55 cent per kilowatt hour. Oh, wow. That's during those wow. times. And really, uh, really for us, when we talk about particularly to our CNI or commercial and industrial customers, you know, which is the market that we kind of uh, focus on, uh, we talk about that time period. In particular, uh, if you're doing business uh, during those times, and if you're a retail location, if you're a restaurant, uh, if you're a manufacturing that has, you know, two to three shifts, you're doing business during that time. And you are paying, you know, five to uh, six times more for your power during that time than you are in the evenings. Uh, so we can do things to mitigate that uh, by shifting your load instead of you drawing your load from the utility now you can draw your load from battery systems or hydrogen fuel cells that are centrally deployed uh, to keep you from A, drawing, drawing those power at that per kilowatt charge, but B, there is a component of the bill, your electricity bill, called a demand charge. So every 15 minutes, they, call, they, they measure what's called an interval. And so they measure how much energy is provided for you to use, Right. So at your highest 15 minute interval of energy provided for you to use, that is a charge. So you're charged for the energy made available to you and you're charged for the consumption of that energy. So if we wow. can shift it to where your peak load is drawn from your own resources, then it makes it a lot easier uh, for you when it comes to pay that bill uh, because you're not paying that high demand charge and you're not paying uh, for consuming the power during those peak times, which can significantly uh, reduce your your bill. 
So is the per kilometer rate in, uh, is there on top of that transmission and distribution charges as well, or other kinds of charges? That is, that is correct. That gets wrapped into that demand charge. Oh, see, that's crazy because the nine and a half cents uh, that I gave you uh, is our all in cost. Oh no, not for us. <laughs> wow. So your, your actual charge is let's say you've got 55 cents per kilowatt hour. And then what would be the demand charge on top of that? It would depend on uh, your highest 15 minutes of demand made available to you. So it, you, that give me a number just uh, as an example. So. It could be about a third of your bill. So it would be 55 cents plus another third of a 55 cents on. Well, uh, you would, well, that's a consumption charge that 55 cent per kilowatt hour during that peak time. Uh, then you get another charge of whatever interval that interval could be, you know, if you turned on all of your stuff at midnight one day, uh, you had, you know, you, you were consuming 10 kilowatts of power and that, that was your highest uh, usage at that time for demand. Uh, that would be a 15 minute interval at midnight. Uh, but so their demand charge is, is, is somewhat separate from a time of day charge. You're getting charged a gotcha. demand charge for whatever time that is, is being provided for you for having that much power made available for you. It's really yep. the consumption charge that is the per kilowatt. Okay, I got it. So demand charge, consumption charge, and uh, all I all I see is dollar signs going off in my head. That's uh, you know compared to what we we uh, really we and here. we see here in California sometimes your energy charges can be like twenty five percent of people's uh, net income, which is amazing. Wow, wow. Okay, well let's talk about businesses because um, okay next door to us is the Texas of uh, Canada, Alberta, and <laughs> there was a. Uh, their independent system operator, and this is really, mm -hmm. there's only two of them in the country and they've got mm -hmm. one of them, uh, did a report two, three years ago. And, you know, they they know distributed energy resources are coming, right? You know, the mm -hmm. stuff we're talking about is on its way. And so they're trying to get out ahead and they're surveying their, you know, uh, stakeholders uh, in the electricity system. And one of the biggest concern that came back was that commercial and industrial uh, customers that are big enough will self-generate. They'll mm -hmm. have their own microgrids and they'll, correct. they'll have their own solar panels and their own wind turbines or whatever it is that they need that they'll do it themselves. And, and, and that makes perfect sense because if the, you know, with solar, particularly in California with solar getting so cheap and energy uh, storage coming down so much, it's on that learning curve that mm -hmm. solar and solar and wind were on. Uh, my understanding now is that, you know, solar paired with batteries is so much cheaper than, um, uh, you know, buying it from the, the utility. You can stand on its own. So, or is that who's driving this? this your CNI customers, as you call them? Absolutely. That's really, again, they're probably only about 20% of the entire market but they probably use about 80% of the, of the energy. Right. Right. So they're driving the market. Absolutely. Um, you know, that's really, that's why we, our core focus is really that uh, SMB market or smaller, medium sized businesses that below one kilowatt market, we really see them really driving that market. Um, Cause we have a lot of smaller, medium sized businesses 
in California and in San Diego in particular, we're like the home of the small and medium sized business. Um, so that below one kilowatt, excuse me, that one megawatt customer, you know, we have, you know, a few larger companies, uh, large institutions or uh, large college campuses and things of that nature. But primarily we see, you know, business parks or uh, smaller office buildings uh, are prevalent here. And that's the market that we're trying to serve because we feel they're underserved, number one, and there is so much opportunity in that particular market space. Okay. Walk me through how you start a project. I mean, do you, do you look at a, an area and say, Hey, this is a right for a microgrid and then go around and recruit uh, businesses to become part of that microgrid. And then you, and then you build it or is it, they come to you. How, how does this work? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, it's really an education campaign, number one. Um, so we target customers that fit a kind of a profile. Again, that 150 kilowatt um, to about a megawatt. So we know what kind of size they are, like a warehouse or a business complex. Uh, we we kind of target them because uh, you you can drive around any business park or uh, you know business area in in the in the area, and you know you probably see less than five percent of them have any sort of solar or anything deployed. Uh, so there are great opportunities as far as that goes. Uh, so we reach out to them. We have our salespeople, you know, reach out to them, um, you know, set an appointment. And from there, once we can uh, get a copy of their bills or we have an, an application that we use that we can really pull their uh, usage information over the past year or two years, that allows us to kind of model uh, what their usage is. And then from there, we can uh, we have systems that we can put in their location and really get what their shading is and we can design a system for them and then we come back and tell them uh, because most of the things that we are done they're financed through a, a vehicle called a power purchase agreement yeah sure so uh, they don't have to you know put out any capital expenditures uh, we take on that responsibility we build the system locally we start generating power and they just start saving money day one once they enter the contract the system gets commissioned now they're they're getting resilient power uh, most of the time when there's an outage in the area they won't even know about it because they're generating their own power uh, and then they're saving about a third all without having to you know put out any money they just commit to purchasing power from us for the next 20 to 25 years what so uh i would have uh, think that uh, industrial parks uh uh you know, big parks, commercial parks with, with, as you say, warehouses. And, you know, there's a number of ports in, mm -hmm. on, on the, in California. Uh, is that, is, is that the low hanging fruit in your market? Absolutely. Again, uh, we pay here in Southern California, in San Diego with our utility, we have the highest utility rates in the country. So any, anything we can do to offer customers a reduction in that, uh, that cost and on top of that giving them resilient services giving them a better service for a lower cost it's it's really low-hanging fruit it's for us it's really an education campaign because most of the time when you uh, talk with a business owner or a building owner and you say microgrid they have a, there's like a glazed look that comes over their eyes yeah sure, sure. <laughs> I, I so can we imagine. have to we have to do it, it once we educate them on the benefits of microgrids it's really a no-brainer at that point so let's say that you've agreed with the customer you're going to put in a microgrid. Uh, walk us through what a microgrid looks like there and what are the, the various components, how they fit together, how the whole thing works. I mean, well, there's a saying in this industry, uh, you know, if you've seen one microgrid, 
you've seen one microgrid because they're all different based on, you know, a lot of different requirements based on your load requirements, based on your mission criticality. Uh, you know, you may be someone that, you know, you can't afford to be, if you're a hospital, you know, you can't afford to be down for, you know, five minutes. Uh, but if you are a bakery, you know, maybe you can take five minutes of downtime. So your mission criticality, criticality really kind of determines that as well. So we, uh, again, we use a tool that can analyze your consumption over the past year, two years to see what your trends are in the winter time and the summertime to see how much power that you actually require at your peak. Uh, right. And then we design, then we design a system to meet your peak loads and uh, to, based on what your mission criticality needs are design a system that can sustain your load uh, in the event of an outage or a loss of power during a, a particular time. So do you install your own solar panels? Do you install your own battery storage? Do you install your own uh, uh, wires? Uh, do you install your own meters? Do you, all of that equipment is, is that you would find in the grid. Uh, do you install that in addition to the grid? Do you, do you or do you, uh, piggyback on the grid? How does that work? No. So we design the, the microgrid itself is essentially you're designing your own grid, right? Uh, that is hyper-local, uh, with these, all of these distributed energy resources, uh, we use uh, panels. We don't make the panels, but we have a partnership uh, with a company called Energy America that has some of the most efficient panels uh, on the market. Uh, we have a, a partner for our battery. We use uh, lithium phosphate batteries instead of oh, you see okay. uh, a lot of you know, batteries that you see out there now are lithium ion batteries, which have somewhat of a fire hazard associated with them. Uh, the lithium phosphate batteries operate at room temperature, so there's no fire hazard associated with them. And they also can cycle a lot more times in the lithium ion batteries. Uh, so we have a 15-year warranty uh, through our batteries, through our partnership with a company called Blue Planted Energy. Uh, also, we work with hydrogen fuel cells uh, in the event that they require more baseload power or we have uh, limited space to provide the, the power sources from. Uh, we use a, a work with a company called Bloom Energy to provide hydrogen fuel cells to supplement that. Now, there is, uh, at this point, uh, a natural gas component to that, uh, but is, there's about a 55, 50 to 55% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by deploying services like that. And that can provide baseload power. I, I'm very curious about the hydrogen component of this because I've, I've had... Uh, Pro proponents and opponents of uh, of hydrogen on. In fact, I just interviewed uh, Michael Lieberk, the guy who started energy, uh, Bloomberg and, and, and New Energy Finance, uh, to talk. And he's a, a very vocal opponent of widespread use of, of hydrogen. And the the I guess the concession he'll make uh, is that you. Hydrogen produced locally for local consumption makes sense. So if you've got a microgrid and you've got an electrolyzer or a little, so mm -hmm. I guess a steam methane reformer or however it is that you're going to make them the uh, the hydrogen, and then you're using it right there with a with a a fuel cell to produce electricity, he would argue, I guess, that that makes sense. And but if you know if you're going to stick it in a pipeline and ship it across and then stick it on a boat and, and ship it to Japan, forget it. That it's the, right. the physics and the economics aren't going to work. 
So I'm very interested in this hyper-local production and use of of uh, fuel cells. So can, what can you tell us about that, and particularly the economics uh, around it? Well, as it stands right now, uh, again, we tap into the, uh, there is a natural gas component to the ones that we deploy, or uh, we can deploy with captured methane as well, uh, which is our preferred method of doing that. So uh, more along the lines of having green hydrogen. So with captured methane, um, you know, we could uh, on for for wastewater treatment or uh, you know animal packing plants or things like that, uh, we capture the methane uh, and we use that to provide the fuel for the hydrogen fuel cell for that process. So that's kind of a biogas is really what exactly. it is. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Or we can use, again, you know, uh, just regular natural gas, compressed, compressed natural gas. Uh, that gives you the resiliency, number one, because the whole compressed natural gas pipeline system is all underground. So you never worry about, you know, in times where you see loss of electricity, you know, it'd be very rarely see loss of gas to any residents. Uh, so that goes with the resiliency piece, but we are looking at ways, particularly here in, in California, they're looking to almost ban natural gas in general. Uh, yeah. In yeah. I've, I've heard that in about 10 years, they're going to be banning natural gas. So we're, you know, uh, really looking at those, uh, ways of producing biogas to run these. And that that's that's our solution for that. We don't believe in you know transporting the hydrogen from place to place, but again, hyperlocal uh, on-site generation of it. Is that technology really falling in in price? We hear about the electrolyzers now being on the learning curve, and uh, what do you? Uh, I mean, you're the guy who would would buy them and deploy them, so you'd be you know intimately familiar with this. Is is that where we're going? Yes, you know it's it's really moving from you know bleeding edge technology to leading edge technology to i think in the next you know 18 to 36 months is going to be widely accepted technology uh, right now you can still get it uh, it's still a little bit on the pricey side but even in comparison to two years ago you know you're paying probably about a third less of what you would pay for a system yeah. like that um you know even a couple of years ago that that's 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 just crazy so um the one thing I'm curious about is, is when you were talking to microgrid, are we talking about a, a system for one, you know, like a business uh, or an industrial plant, or are we talking about a grid that incorporates numerous or multiple uh, businesses within a particular area, or maybe it's, you know, houses in a, in like in a residential development, that kind of thing. What? So the answer would be yes. To all of the above, it could be uh, hyper local. Uh, a one individual business could say, "Hey, listen, I want to generate my own power. I have about a one megawatt, you know, need. Uh, come install me a system for that." Or it could be a complete business park with eight or nine or ten different buildings in that business park, uh, but they, you know, have a central feed, you know, for all of the buildings. Um, there is a substation that's dedicated to them or something. We can build out services to support all of those buildings or, you know, a big thing. Now there are moved to community solar projects, but we like to refer to them as community microgrid projects where you can provide service to an entire community, particularly these rural locations here in California, 
we are, you know, uh, close to a lot of the tribal locations. Most of the tribal locations are in the mountains and they are subject to what's called public safety power shutoffs, where in the past uh, we've had, you know, because of the locations, we have high winds that generate and uh, sometimes can knock down power lines, which can start fires, which can spread damage, you know, for miles and miles and miles. So a lot of the uh, investor-owned utilities have been sued because of fires that have started. So now, anytime that the wind gets up above like 20 miles per hour in an area, they shut the power off to make sure that if a line happens to fall, it's not electricity on the line, so it wouldn't start a fire. But that really affects these communities that are out in the in the mountains and in the canyons that have these high winds that they live in these areas that sometimes they shut off power for like three to four days. Okay, so, well, I, yeah, it, you can see their you can see their motivation. Uh, but that's I mean we've heard about the blackouts and the brownouts in California. So even in a place like San Diego, which is a major a major city, you would think that then they have would have the same concerns because. I mean, you could have a fire outside, you know, someplace in a rural area, but, Absolutely. you know, if it brings the grid down, then you're Absolutely. just as affected as, as a small community up in the mountains, a tribal community that, you know, that sort of thing. That is absolutely true. That's why we really believe in distributed production of, of electricity uh, to, to get rid of that as an, as an obstacle. Now you've been in the business for a while, Rod. What's mm -hmm. the, are you finding that people are now much more accepting of the idea of microgrids, local solar, you know, storage that, that than they were a year ago, five years ago? Absolutely. Number one, you know, everybody knows now, you know, solar is pretty widely accepted um, as a, a generation asset. You know, everybody knows about solar. Most people they know about including batteries, but they don't really understand the term microgrid. So it's just a little education on that, on that front. But once people get to understand what it is, it just makes sense, right? It's, it's not some foreign concept or, you know, you have to be Sir Isaac Newton to understand it as a concept. You know, you generate power and the ex any excess power you don't generate, you, you don't use at the time, you store in a battery. Everybody understands batteries. Everybody has a cell phone that they that don't walk around connected to. So they understand how batteries keep things powered up in the event that uh, you don't have direct power. Like when you're connected to your charger on your phone and you remove the charger, then you have your, your, your phone doesn't shut off. Same concept. I know it's easy to just to give an analogy like that. Hey, just like a cell phone, you know, when it's plugged to the charger, it's on. Uh, and then when you, when you want to move around and take it with you, the, the, your phone stays on, never goes off. Same kind of concept to get the resiliency. Does, do your microgrids play nice with the, uh, the investor-owned utility grids? If they play nice with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> Of course. Really, we, we, have, we really have no. If we're going to be on their grid, uh, if it's a microgrid, sem semantically, we'll go over this. A microgrid means that you are attached to the grid. A mini grid means that you are not attached to the grid. Oh, okay. So I didn't know that. If you are a microgrid, there are things that you have to conform to, and you know you have to go through interconnect requests. You have to conform to a certain standard, certain frequencies, and you have what's called a microgrid controller to help keep all of that stuff in phase. So uh, you have to play nice if you want to be connected to the grid. Now, if you're not connected to the grid, you really couldn't care less. So at that point, your grid controller. Uh, goes from grid following to what's called grid forming, 
to where it it acts and your equipment thinks that it is the actual grid itself. That is that is very cool. So do our utilities beginning to, you know, especially in California where they're, you know, the investor owned utilities, the big ones have just had it's been a tough time the last five, 10 years. What with mm-hmm. the fires and blackouts mm-hmm. and all of that. Are they now beginning to look at at folks like you and and you know and microgrids and going, hey, maybe that might actually be to our advantage to work with these guys. One hundred percent. They are finally, huh? Yeah. You know, because really the actual costs and expenses are really in the energy generation. Right. They've already laid the lines, you know, for so as far as transmission and distribution, I mean, they're not paying additional costs for that because they already had the lines in the ground. So their costs are really in is in generating the electricity. So if they can just outsource that, um, they can save a ton. They don't they're not liable um, because really it's all about a liability in, in a lot of cases for them. So if they can remove that liability and still provide that service, then that's great. And there's also a move here in California in particular. Uh, to go with what's called uh, CCAs or community choice aggregators or community choice energy, where the actual municipalities are now joining forces and into joint partnerships where they are the actual energy providers uh, for these areas. Uh, Right now here in in San Diego, we have uh, two primary ones. Now one that is generally, uh, you know, in, in the central area of San Diego and then the one that's in the North area of San Diego where, where I live, uh, and now they work together to set those rates and those policies and how much renewable they want to have. And, and as a consumer, uh, you now have to opt out uh, being with the CCA instead of, you know, joining it. So you're already a part of that uh, already. Yeah, I, I listened to a podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Jigger Shaw, Department of Energy, yes. well-known yes. well-known energy expert, and they were talking about virtual power plants, which is another mm-hmm. way of you know describing these CCAs. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Jigger Shaw's uh, opinion was that this you know virtual power plants uh, are primed to be a major player in the uh, modernization of the U.S. Uh, power grid. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, give me your take on that. Um, well, one. With the recent passing of the Inflation Reduction Act here in America, we're going to have a total reshaping of our grid over the next 15 years in particular. Uh, You see a lot of organizations uh, now having mandates to particularly by 2030 or 2035 or two common dates. uh, They want to be either 100% or 75% all renewable. Um, you know, so they want to get rid of fossil fuels by 2035 here in California, you can't even, they won't even uh, be allowed to sell a car that uh, runs fossil fuel. So all new cars from that point on will be electric. Uh, so we are seeing a total shift in the grid fueled by about, you know, a few billion dollars poured in by our government to make this happen in tax incentives and uh, grant monies that are uh, available so that's really the fuel that's uh, feeding this uh, is that the dedication from our, our federal government to make it happen. Uh, prior to that, it was kind of difficult to get some of these projects financed. Uh, but now, because of not only the additional funding, but the fact that they make uh, all of these tax credits transferable now uh, has really incentivized it as well. 
let's talk battery storage for a while. Um, I've I've interviewed a number of you know startups who are working on zinc ion would be one. Mm-hmm. Yep, um, I'm looking at that. So uh, read of of flow batteries, redux flow ba- flow batteries mm-hmm. for long long term storage. We're looking at, you know, there's some, as you know, the some exotic stuff out there, like gravity storage and yeah, gel batteries and solid yeah. state. But my take, because batteries are so ubiquitous in the clean energy system that, you know, we, we talk about it in terms of transportation. We talk about it in all sorts of applications. And so I spend a, a fair amount of time interviewing people about battery technologies and once you get your head around the fact that this is such an innovative uh, uh, space right now, there's so much coming down the pike that, and it, and it will, and there will be very, very specialized forms of storage, whether, you know, like, you know, one fellow was telling one CEO was telling me, well, look, I mean, you know, in your house, you could have literally a a battery, uh, the size of a, a freezer sitting next to your freezer and you could be on a, a local like a microgrid or community solar uh, uh, kind of an arrangement, or you could have panels on your house, depending on where you are. All of that, you can just, you can configure, it can be configured to your local circumstances. Yes, and, absolutely. And so tell me about the role that, that sto- where storage plays now in your microgrids and where you think it's going to play in the next like two to five years, 10 years. I mean, just think of, the role storage plays now in our lifetimes. Like I just gave you the example of the cell phone. Uh, yeah, sure. You know, everything runs off. You know, you have a battery in your car right now to run all of your electronics. Um, so batteries in particular, you know, we are very familiar with their importance. And they're really going to be the primary unlock uh, for these microgrids. Uh, so, number okay. number so- one. So they really un- uh, they unlock it. They make everything. Oh, absolutely. Uh, cost effect. Okay. Because you know, like I say, most people are every you know everybody's familiar with solar, but you know we are a firm believer that people need power at night. <laughs> so okay, I'll, I'll go along with that. <laughs> so batteries are what's going to really facilitate that. Uh, that's going to be the most cost effective. Now there are other technologies, of course. You know, you can go with a diesel generator can provide power. Uh, you know, when the solar is not generating. But we think the most cost-effective and the most responsible way to do this is going to be through batteries. Uh, you're seeing the price come down with some of these technologies. You know, we, we're, we're closely following these technologies as well. We've, we've been looking into a company, made it, matter of fact, they're a Canadian-based company who's really into the zinc the zinc batteries. Uh, zinc 8 is a is a company uh, that we've really been following pretty closely. They're doing some some projects right now with the state of New York. So we're we're following them very closely. Like you said, the solid state batteries, which we feel are going to be more towards the automotive sector sure. um, than us. Uh, then they got gel batteries, flow batteries. Uh, there's going to be an issue, although right now we feel that we're using the most efficient uh, form of lithium battery technology using the lithium ferrous phosphate instead of, instead of lithium ion. But there's going to be an issue with uh, discarding those at some point, right? Uh, which we haven't really given a whole lot of thought about, but uh, trust me, in the next few years, there's going to be some issues around that. Uh, so we're we're following these technologies pretty closely because, again, uh, batteries, we feel, 
is the key unlock for these technologies until we get, you know, uh, generation sources like cold fusion or something like that. But as of right now, batteries are going to be the thing. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, I'll just note in passing, because I don't want to get sidetracked on the recycling thing, but, you know, there's a company in Toronto called Lifecycle that just raised almost $700 million in, in the U.S. in its A or B uh, series offering. And they claim that their system can recycle 95% of a, a lithium-ion battery, and then you can you know, reuse the all of that material. So That's I, great. Yeah, my my take is we're getting there. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's maybe early days on the recycling side, but mm-hmm. it, it, I think it looks promising. Which you know, it's got to be good news for for companies. Oh, companies absolutely. Like I mean, again, our whole issue is about you know saving the planet. Uh, so you know, we've just chosen the the route of you know energy to do that, but you know, recycling and you know, there are so many other things that 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 uh, play a part in that. So anything that we can support in that effort, uh, I'm certainly all behind. Yeah, I want to ask you that question. Maybe we'll use this to wrap up the interview. I mean, this has been fascinating, Rod. But I'm one of the things that appeals to me or occurs to me in the in as I'm looking at the you know these various clean energy technologies is this never one technology. It's no. a suite of technology, a bundle of technologies. And there's there's all of these really crazy enabling technologies like artificial intelligence and really super cheap but super fast computers mm-hmm. and fiber and all of these. Nobody talks about this stuff. And and without this, this is like the, you know, the this is the the non-sexy stuff that just goes and makes everything else all work together at a low price and is reliable and and I, I just, I, I'm curious about your views of uh, your opinion about that. I mean, all of these, you know, this really is a technology solution that we provide with the microgrid. Uh, so technology certainly uh, makes all of these things possible. Uh, you know, AI is going to play a big part of that to, you know, make the decisions, the optimal decisions of when to switch, what generating capacity, or generating asset, you know, when to, you know, uh, you know, make adjustments to the, to the load, when to make adjustments to, you know, your grid frequencies, it can think a lot faster than we can in certain instances. So AI is going to take a big part of that. And also, you know, advanced computing systems are going to take a, uh, play a big role in that communications because a lot of these things are going to be remote and they're going to be managed remotely. Um, so we got to find a secure way to do that. So, you know, uh, eliminate the, or at least significantly reduce the chances of getting hacked or something like that. Uh, so it got to be done in a smart and secure way as well. So technology is going to play a major role in facilitating these advances. The, I've had a, an interview uh, recently with a, well, he's now a CEO of Solar Morgan in Toronto, and that's Mike Andrade. He's, he's been 30 years in the electronics manufacturing business. And and the uh, interview, which is done, I think it's just a few episodes uh, ahead of this one, uh, is is energy as a technology versus energy as a commodity. And once you, you know, so if you're burning coal, you're burning oil, you're burning natural gas, you, you know, it's a fairly straightforward thing now. You've got like it's coal, you got a coal plant, you've got the wire, mm-hmm. you got the transmission system, you got the distribution. And, uh, and really, you can't squeeze much more cost out of that. You, you, you can't, there aren't a lot of more efficiencies to be had. But once you start, you think of uh, energy as a technology, as you just said, this is all about, this is a technology play, not a commodity play. 
And then all of those technologies jump on a learning curve. And so that every time you double the production of them, the cost goes down 15% Mm -hmm. or 20, whatever, whatever it happens to be. And, and they keep driving efficiencies out. And my favorite example of this is when I was a kid, and and I hate to say this, like in the early seventies. Okay. This is a (laughs) long time ago, man. You know, I had to buy a calculator and it was, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 bucks. I mean, it was, it was a crazy price. Right. And now you couldn't give away a calculator. <laughs> exactly. They're, yeah. they're everybody so has cheap. one on their phone. Yeah. Everybody has yeah. one on their phone and everything now. Yeah. And, and so that, those kind of uh, sque- ability to squeeze cost out of the supply chains, bring down the, bring down the cost per unit, bring up the efficiencies is very unique to electronics, very yes. unique to a technology approach. And everything I've heard you say today would, would back up that idea. Absolutely. You can apply it to, what Moore's law, where the capacity yeah. of uh you know the electronics and computing systems double every eighteen months. So yes, there's actually there actually is a law for this one, and I it escapes me now. It was a an engineer at in California, I think, actually mm-hmm. at an airplane company in the in the mid thirties, who noticed that every time they doubled the production of airplanes that their labor costs went down uh, 15% mm-hmm. and, and it became, and so he, he proposed this as a law. That's not Moore's law, but I think it starts, his last name started with, Oh, now it's bugging me. I wish I could remember. <laughs> doesn't matter. His idea that he proposed in the mid thirties became the basis of learning curve theory. Mm-hmm. And so we know now that the more you deploy of energy as a technology, the cheaper it gets per unit. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I question, I mean, that's pretty undisputed at this point. Yeah. And so that bodes well, man, I I think you're on like the, you're on the, the perfect place, you know, for, uh, for, uh, if you're going to grow your business and all the best of luck to you, Rod, this is fascinating. I, uh, uh, you guys are clearly way ahead of where we are in Canada. It's, I, I, I say this all the time. Every time we come, we do an episode about some aspect of the power sector, uh, I'm bemoaning how far behind Canada is on regulatory issues, on adopting of renewable energy, of all of these other technologies, because my my take in this is that electricity is the foundation of the 21st century economy. Absolutely. And if, if you haven't got reliable, low-cost, uh, clean electricity, you do not, you're not going to be able to compete with China, with California, with wherever. And uh, that's I'm that's my drum beat for Canada. And I'm not sure anybody's listening, but I'm going to keep on beating the drum. So, right. but thank you very much for this. This has been fascinating. It is my pleasure. You know, I heard once in a documentary, just to leave you with this, um, I was watching a documentary once and uh, basically the gist of it was the presence of electricity doesn't necessarily guarantee success, but the absence of electricity absolutely guarantees poverty and strife any location so if you have a somewhere who they don't have electricity you can guarantee there's going to be poverty there guaranteed there you go and we might we might amend that to say if you don't have if you don't have uh you know clean a uh, low-cost reliable uh electricity uh you may not be as competitive as your neighbors in other states or provinces or or regions that is absolutely correct well sir good luck to you it's been a pleasure chatting Thank you. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it.